Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for physical medicine and rehabilitation healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic. Athletes and leg pain. Those are two words that seem almost synonymous. Many of our athletic patients, from little leaguers to weekend warriors to high school athletes to professional athletes, seem to have complaints of a variety of lower extremity symptoms. Some injuries, such as ACL tear or ankle fractures, can be readily diagnosed, but many others are very subtle and diagnostically challenging. Today we are joined by Dr. John Finoff a colleague in sports medicine at the Mayo Clinic Square in Minneapolis to help unravel some of the complexity of these lower extremity dysfunctions. Welcome, John. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for having me today. So I'm going to give you a presentation, John. A 42-year-old woman with buttock pain only when she runs. She runs, she gets going about a quarter mile and starts to develop this dull, aching pain in her buttocks that radiates into her upper thigh. Tell me how you think about that, trying to diagnose what the etiology is. Boy, Jeff, that's a great case. Um, You know, buttock pain has a very broad differential diagnosis, and there are a lot of different things that can cause it. So I'll just go through a few of the things that I think about that might help somebody figure out what is causing that buttock pain. So in a uh, young runner... One of the things that can cause pain in that area is uh, constriction of the artery in the hip, so external iliac artery endofibrosis. Um, With repetitive hip flexion, you get turbulence in the external iliac artery, and that turbulence will start to irritate the intima of the artery, and then it'll thicken, and therefore you get luminal stenosis. And uh, normally with regular daily activities, no problems whatsoever. But when you start exercising, and you're trying to pump a bunch of blood down into your lower extremities, even subtle uh, decreases in the size of that lumen can cause people to have ischemic pain. And just depending on where the muscle is that has the highest metabolic demand, that's, that's where you're going to feel that pain. And so frequently with external iliac artery endofibrosis, they'll have pain in their buttock, but they can have it in their thigh and calf and so on. Um, Other things to think about, it's not that uncommon for people to have bilateral spondylolysis, a spondylolisthesis, and now they've got a little bit of spinal stenosis, even though they're relatively young. So then they get neurogenic claudication when they're running. Or another thing when they're running, if they have tight hip flexors, they'll get repetitive anterior tilting of their pelvis as they're uh, in the terminal stance phase of gait in the pre-swing phase. And so when that happens, it's going to crank on the SI joint and the set joints um, and the iliolumbar ligaments and a lot of different things in that area. So those can all cause pain radiating to the buttock. And then another very common cause of buttock pain are, are problems within those deep external rotators of the buttock area, whether it's piriformis or obturator internus or quadratus femoris. So really pretty broad differential diagnosis. Um, going all the way from neurologic, spinal stenosis, radiculopathy, vascular, 
external iliac into fibrosis muscular, uh, piriformis in the deep external rotators, and joint facet and SI joint. So besides a physical examination, do you usually put runners on a treadmill to have them attempt to replicate the, the symptomatology? Yeah, I do. Um, and we do that for several reasons. One is we want to look at their uh, running pattern because a lot of people have abnormalities in their running pattern that may really predispose to developing any of these problems that I just talked about. Um, in addition, sometimes when you do your standard physical examination, everything's normal. Yeah. But if you provoke their symptoms, then you find what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Even sort of anatomic abnormalities can give you a good clue as to what's going on. So when they're walking, looking and seeing, do they have a Trendelenburg gait? Do they appear to have a leg length discrepancy? Do they have scoliosis? You know, a lot of different things. An anti-tilted pelvis uh, with that hyperlordosis of their low back. So lots of good things with running and, and walking and, and just assessing their posture that can help you. One thing I know that you've written quite extensively on is ischiofemoral impingement syndrome. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, ischiofemoral impingement has not been, we didn't know about it for, we haven't known about it for a very long time. It's a relatively new diagnosis from medical standards. So it's one of these things where it's been seeing us for years and years and years, but we haven't seen it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the more you know, the more that you find things. So at any rate, the first time that this was described is, was in people who had total hip arthroplasties. And after they had total hip arthroplasties, some people would develop Trendelenburg gait. They'd be weak in their gluteus minimus and medius. And you can think with a Trendelenburg on your stance phase, as your pelvis is dropping on the contralateral side, you're essentially getting femoral adduction. Mm-hmm. When you have femoral adduction, it's going to bring the lesser trochanter of the proximal femur closer to your ischial tuberosity, and it'll pinch the soft tissues in between those two bony prominences. And the, and the soft tissue that's there is your quadratus femoris. And so you, ischiofemoral impingement is compressing the quadratus femoris between your ischial tuberosity in uh, hamstring origin there, and your lesser trochanter. Now, while it was first discovered in people with sort of buttock uh, and hip pain after total hip arthroplasty, we've found this in a lot of different people throughout the population as a whole. And frankly, um, there have been some studies that have looked at MRIs of uh, people who came in for a variety of different complaints just to see what percentage of people have edema within their quadratus femoris, which would suggest that they have ischiofemoral impingement. And it's, it's actually uh, quite surprising. You can have 10 to 15% of people with edema within that area. Hmm. So it really suggests that this is more common than previously thought. Wow. So MRI is the best way to delineate this? Well, you know, there's, there are questions about that. If you want to know if there's edema within the quadratus femoris muscle, absolutely. Uh, An MRI is going to give you that information better than any other study. But, you know, there can be people who are asymptomatic that have edema within their quadratus femoris. So some other things that are really important uh, would be the dynamic evaluation of that area uh, and specifically looking at ischiofemoral uh, 
the space between the ischial tuberosity and the lesser trochanter of the femur, so that ischiofemoral space. And uh, if that's narrowed, then that's very likely pinching tissues in that area. And sometimes you can even get snapping of the quadratus femoris. So what you need in order to assess it at multiple different positions, uh, this space at multiple different positions, is a dynamic study. So that's where ultrasound comes in. So we did a really nice study looking at hip position and the ischiofemoral space dimensions. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that with hip adduction, extension, and external rotation, that causes the most significant narrowing of the ischiofemoral space. So you can look at that with ultrasound as opposed to being an, MR, an MRI where it's really hard to be in that position. Sure. And you can measure as you're taking the hip into ex internal and external rotation and look at those bony prominences coming together and see if those soft tissues are compressing. And if they have reproduction of their symptoms while you're doing that, that's extremely suggestive that that is the cause of their pain. So let's say you diagnose that. How do you treat it? Well, I refer them to you. No, really, seriously. What I would do is I would strengthen the uh, hip abductor musculature to try to prevent a Trendelenburg gait. I would uh, talk to the person about having their foot pointed in a, more of a sagittal plane as opposed to getting into an externally rotated position because if they put their hip into an externally rotated position, then that's going to narrow that ischiofemoral interval. And then shortening their stride length. Um, because it is extension, adduction, and external rotation that causes this problem. So working on their gait mechanics, working on their strength, and if, uh, if those things do not help and they have a narrowed ischiofemoral interval, then I would proceed with an injection in that area with mm -hmm. a corticosteroid. That will give you both diagnostic and hopefully therapeutic uh, benefits. Um, and then the other thing is, is if that works, but it's only temporary, so you get the diagnostic effect, but it doesn't help them therapeutically, then you could try a chemical debulking procedure with Botox. Hmm. So you inject Botox into that area, and it causes atrophy of the muscle, so it's a debulking procedure. And if those things don't work, uh, then doing a lesser trochanteric osteotomy uh, and potentially resecting the uh, quadratus femoris would be a final surgical option. That's fascinating with the debulking. Well, you get weakness, too. I mean, are patients able to continue to do their activities and run and everything else? Absolutely. I mean, certainly all of our muscles are there for a reason, but the quadratus femoris is not a big primary mover. It's more of a stabilizer, but you also have five other deep external rotators of your hip. And oh. So uh, people typically don't notice a functional change when you um, use a Botox injection into that quadratus femoris. Interesting. Let's change it up a little bit. Let's talk about another similar patient, 42-year-old woman um, who comes in with calf pain when she starts to run. What does that make you think of? Well, uh, again, I'd be kind of going through a broad differential diagnosis, so it could be spinal stenosis or neurochromal stenosis from a radiculopathy, something that would cause you know, leg pain from a neurologic source. Uh, another uh, source could be vascular, but rather than it being external iliac artery endofibrosis, it still could be, but but more likely it's going to be distal because they're having distal mm -hmm. symptoms. And so I'd think of popliteal artery entrapment. 
which can be caused by a variety of different uh, anatomic anomalies, an anomalous course of the artery or an anomalous origin of your medial head of the gastroc, or it can just be functional where you have large enough musculature that it's just pushing on that artery and constricting it when you have calf muscle contraction. It can also be chronic exertional compartment syndrome or a stress fracture or a strain uh, of musculotendinous junction in that area. So again, broad differential diagnosis, um, but uh, you know something that you can figure out. A lot there are a lot of clues on on your history and physical examination that'll help point you in specific directions. That's another thing. Uh, chronic exertional uh, pain. I'm sure I've seen that. Well, it's seen me. I haven't seen it, as you've said. How do you how do you figure that out? So, chronic exertional compartment syndrome occurs when your muscle, as you're exercising, it gets engorged with blood, and so it swells. You get pumped up, and uh, it is contained within your muscles are contained within a fascial compartment, um, and so some of one side might be bone, but then you have this fascial membrane that wraps around the outer part of the muscle. And uh, so as muscle is swelling, if it takes up all the space within that compartment, then it's going to start squeezing on itself, and the pressure will go up, and it hurts, and it's a pressure sensation, and it feels like their muscles are going to explode. And if they get to a certain point, then they can actually start compressing the nerves that are in that compartment, and so they'll often get secondary neurologic symptoms. So numbness, tingling, weakness. Uh, so they, you know, if this is happening in the anterior compartment, they might get a foot drop. So they start noticing that they're tripping over their feet when they're running, and they get these symptoms. But the interesting thing about chronic exertional compartment syndrome that's different than, like, a stress reaction or stress fracture in your bone or a strain in your muscle or tendon um, is you stop exercising, and usually within 5, 10 minutes, those symptoms just go away, and you do a physical examination, and they're stone-cold normal. So these are the people that come in, and they tell their doctor, you know, doctor, I'm having this horrible pain in my leg. I exercise, and I think it's shin splints, and I, and I can't get through it. But then when I stop exercising, it goes away, and then the doctor looks at them, and everything's normal, and they get an MRI, and it's stone-cold normal. And they're like, well, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe you should stop doing that activity. But if you can figure out what the problem is, then there are actually a lot of pretty good treatments at this point for a variety of different types of chronic exertional compartment syndrome, depending on the compartments that are being affected. So do you do pressure monitoring? Do you do, you know? Yeah. So here at Mayo Clinic, we for diagnosis, the gold standard for diagnosing chronic exertional compartment syndrome is sticking a big, fat needle into their compartment. And you can't really use much local anesthetic because that uh, spuriously will elevate their compartment pressure. You've added fluid to their compartment. So you, you numb their skin and a little bit of the subcutaneous tissues, but then you put this big old needle into the compartment, and you do it at baseline, and then at uh, one and five minutes after exercise that provokes their symptoms. So they get stuck in all these compartments multiple times. Now, that is the gold standard, and if their pressures go up, they have a diagnosis of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. But... Here at Mayo Clinic, we've developed a really cool in-MRI exercise protocol where we do a baseline MRI, and then their feet are strapped to this plate, and they pull up on the strap, and they push down on the plate, and we can actually look for popliteal artery entrapment syndrome and uh, chronic exertional compartment syndrome in all four leg compartments without poking a single needle into them 
and uh, and it's actually very sensitive and specific for chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So we're we're moving more towards using that non-invasive measure, and when it's equivocal, then then getting the compartment pressure testing. Yeah, that's a 14 gauge needle, if I remember correctly, which is uh, just shy of a straw. It's it's big. Um, ultrasound. Do you see a p- potential for that in diagnosis? Yeah, so ultrasound has had a couple of studies, um, and the main thing that it's been uh, that they've used it for it's being evaluated with elastography, so looking at the muscle stiffness mm-hmm. with chronic exertional compartment syndrome. But one of the big difficulties right now is the reproducibility of ultrasound elastography measurements, and so it's. That can be really difficult um, and uh, really has yet to be proven. And then the other one that's been investigated is just looking at the anterior-posterior dimensions of a muscle group or a compartment before and after exercise, looking and seeing how much it expands. Uh, And there was one small case series that suggested that that might actually be a fairly uh, sensitive and specific test for anterior chronic exertional compartment syndrome. It hasn't been evaluated in other compartments. Uh, that was a small key series and needs to be reproduced at uh, other sensors. But certainly anything that can be done that's non-invasive to diagnose chronic exertional compartment syndrome uh, would be of benefit. And there are, you know, there are ultrasound-guided surgical procedures to treat this. We can talk about Well, that's my next question. You're like a plant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you diagnose it. What are you going to do to treat it? So there are a variety of treatments out there. So one, of course, is stop doing the activity that is causing the symptoms because frequently it is associated with a very specific activity. And so if you talk to people about, uh, if they're a runner, and say, hey, if you switch to biking, this probably won't bother you. Some people are willing to do that. Other people are not. You know, they're not. But activity modification is one uh, option. Another activity uh, modification that can be done is changing your running pattern if running is what causes it. So a common, the most common place for chronic exertional compartment syndrome is in the anterior compartment of the leg. And so as you run, if you're a heel striker, when you have that initial contact, you have to have an eccentric contraction of your anterior compartment musculature as you're allowing your foot to gradually plantar flex. Um, and that causes chronic exertional compartment syndrome in the anterior compartment. So if you can change their gait pattern, so instead of being an initial heel strike, initial contact being with their heel, having it be their mid or forefoot, uh, then it shifts all the stress from the anterior compartment to their posterior compartment and, uh, and lateral compartment. And that makes a huge difference. Um, so that's another option. But for people who do uh, multi-directional sports, so they're running, but then they have to slow down and change direction, can't be a initial contact on your forefoot or midfoot at all times. You have to heel strike, and so it doesn't work for soccer players or basketball players. Um, it only works for essentially long-distance runners. Um, but if those activity modifications uh, or gait changes are not an option or don't work, then some less interventional uh, options would be a Botox injection into the muscles mm. of that compartment. Or a, an ultrasound-guided fasciotomy, which was developed here by us at Mayo Clinic. Um, and you do a 3-millimeter incision, and you use a V-shaped meniscotome, which is uh, a long, narrow surgical device with a V-shaped um, cutting tip. 
and you slide it through this three millimeter incision and then just like cutting wrapping paper with scissors, you get it on either side of the fascia and you slide it down the fascia and cut the fascia. And we've done that on the anterior and lateral compartments and we're developing techniques for the superficial and deep posterior compartments. Hmm. That's another option. You know, people that's done in an outpatient setting and they walk, you know, they walk away from the procedure. They don't have to be on crutches or, and they're running within a week or two. So really dramatic, uh, recover, rapid recovery from that. Or you can do a standard fasciotomy, um, which people are very familiar with. You know, it's a fairly good size incision, even when they're doing a, trying to do a small incision. And, um, you know, it takes a long time to recover from. Sure. Wow, that's fascinating, Dr. Finoff. The links to the papers discussed by Dr. Finoff are available in the description box. We've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Finoff, a colleague in sports medicine at the Mayo Clinic Square in Minneapolis. Thanks for your time, John. It's really been a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me today. This is Jeff Bro, physiatrist in PM&R at Mayo Clinic, saying thank you for your time. Until we talk again, remember the words of one of our founders, Dr. William Mayo. Rehabilitation is to be the master word in medicine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.